Does anybody know what special day it is today? It's June 25th. Why is June 25th different than any other day? This is like, what, this is what your kids are supposed to ask you at the Passover. Why is tonight any different than any other night? Um, yeah, no, that's not, it has nothing to do with your wedding anniversary. Not the longest day of the year. You're getting closer, though. Today, is, this is really close. Today is the um, anniversary of the, the Augsburg Confession. Okay, so when the Lutheran, you know, if, if somebody asked you, when did the Reformation start? Yeah, every, I mean, yeah, everybody knows that. It's on your calendar, right? Um, if anybody were to ask you, when did the Reformation start? What, there's different ways you could answer that question. What's, what's kind of the famous story that we think of? Yeah, and do you know what day it was when Luther nailed the theses to the wall? It was, yep, Halloween, right? It was Halloween. It was All Hallows' Eve, the day before All Saints' Day. And uh, has anyone ever read the 95 Theses? Anybody? Jeff? Well, what's your impression of the 95 Theses, Jeff? Yeah. Yeah, the, if, you, if you were to look, that was 1517. So, um, you know, there's, there's a big difference between early Luther, or I don't know how big it is, but there is a difference, a noticeable difference between Luther as a, you know, a monk in 1517 and Luther as kind of the way we know him later in, say, the 1530s. I mean, this people do change over time, right? Um, and if you ever read the 95 Theses, I think you'll, you'll kind of come away scratching your head saying, that was Lutheran? <laughs> um, because there's a lot about indulgences, there's a lot of the 95 Theses that just, it doesn't really click. Um, and so the, the you know, a, maybe a better answer to when did the Reformation really, I don't know, begin, but when was it official is 1530. On June 25th in 1530, there was finally this gathering. The, the reformers wanted there to be a gathering where they could actually say, hey, here's what we believe. Here's what we're teaching. Here's the problems that we see. And uh, the Pope, of course, wasn't interested, right? Um, the Pope didn't want to hear, here's all your problems. So he wasn't going to call a council. So if the Pope won't call a council, who, who do you turn to? The emperor, yeah, the layman. So Emperor Charles V calls a, or convened a council, and he was concerned. Why, why are emperors concerned about religious unity? Messing up the country. And if you know your, uh, your 1500s history, there was a big problem in Europe. What was it? Hayes, you know this, don't you? Who was going to attack Europe? The Turks. The Turks are always a problem. And so em the emperor wants his, his empire to be unified. I'm sure he had, you know, he had a conscience too. I'm sure he had concerns for the truth. But um, kind of the practical reason to have a council is if we're going to fight the Turks, the Muslims, we got to all be on the same page. So 1530, the city was Augsburg. The Augsburg Confession was put forward. And if you read the Augsburg Confession, how many of you have ever read the Augsburg Confession? Oh, we have work to do don't we? Um, if you read the Augsburg, I would highly recommend the Augsburg Confession. I would only mildly recommend the 95 Theses. The Augsburg Confession, you'll say, oh man, this is, this is high octane. This is 200 proof Lutheranism. 
Um, that's the good stuff. That's what you want to put in your coffee in the morning. Okay? Um, but that's, that's today, June 25th, uh, is really the, it's not the start of the Reformation per se, but it's really the birthday uh, of the Reformation. Okay, um, that being said, the more you know, right? The more you know. Um, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 12. We are going to pick up our study of Abraham. And hopefully today we'll do two things. We're going to talk about altars in the Old Testament and in the New, altars in the Bible. Maybe it's better to just talk about the Bible. Um, and we're, we're hopefully also going to get into the deceiving of Pharaoh. This is one of those stories in the Bible where you read it and you think, well, it's always wrong to lie, right, Derek? Has your mom ever told you that? Which commandment is it against to tell lies? Which commandment is thou shalt not lie? Cal, do you remember? It's, it's, not in the, it's not explicitly in the commandments. I think we usually would put it in with the eighth commandment. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not... That's as much as I remember right now. Tell lies about our neighbor, right? So, it, Slander, uh, hurt his reputation or anything like that, bear false, all those things, yeah. Um, but then you read the Bible and you find there's a whole bunch of stories where people are deceiving other people. And God doesn't say, hey, knock it off. That's against the Eighth Commandment. So you have to have a, a bit of discernment, a bit of wisdom to figure out why is it okay for Abraham to lie, but that doesn't give me permission to cheat on my taxes. Because that's what we all want to do, right? If we could just cheat a little more on our taxes. Now, you should use as many loopholes as possible. You should not pay the government any more money than you absolutely have to. It's better that you have that money than that they do. But um, you shouldn't lie about it. So we'll, we'll talk about deceiving the serpent today, too. But turn in your Bibles first to uh, chapter 12. Let's just get these verses out in the open again. Yes, Sam? My gun? Yeah, go get me my gun. No, I've got it right here. Okay, I've got my pointer. The, for those of you who don't know, I got this two weeks ago, and the boys, they just always want to know, Dad, do you have your laser pointer? Do you have your laser pointer? It's very important that we have that. Um, who will read for us Genesis 12, 7 through 9? Dave, why don't you read it for us, nice and loud. Okay, so we've got the geography here, and you notice we talked about trees last week, right? God being like a tree, and men being supposed to be like trees. Um, if you look down here, here's our little geography. We've got Shechem. That's where he built the altar by the oak tree. And we're going to hear about Abram or Abraham living by the oak trees later in the book of Genesis. Um, but not pictured on there is Bethel, which is a little bit south. I've been drinking my caffeine this morning. Can you tell? 
get really shaky. Um, <coughs> jittery. Uh, but the, um, what is Bethel more famous for? Here, there's almost no description. Do you know any other Bethel Bible stories? There's, uh, you've probably seen churches called Bethel, right? Um, oftentimes, Mount Zion, Bethel. If you, if you want to take an Old Testament name for your church, Bethel's a good one. Bethel in Hebrew means the, um, the house of God. Beth means house. And then El means God. So Bethlehem, anything that has that word Beth in it has to do with houses. Bethlehem, Bethlehem, house of bread. Good. Max is our Hebrew scholar. Um, so Bethlehem is house of bread. Beth El is house of God. This is where Jacob, Abraham's grandson, had his dream about the stairway to heaven. It's where Led Zeppelin got the song, right? God said... Um, there's a lady who's sure. Uh, anyways, God appeared to, to Jacob at Bethel, and he, Jacob had this dream of a connection between heaven and earth. And when he woke from the dream, he said, surely this is the house of God. Surely this is the gate of heaven. And I didn't know it. Um, and that goes back here to Abraham, right? Abraham originally built the altar there. And what we see in Abraham's life, his whole life, Here's just one little episode of it. He's kind of conducting a, um, a proto-conquest of the land, or a shadow conquest. So Abraham's going to journey through all these places, and when you build an altar in a place, it's like when you were in high school, and you went into the bathroom stall, and <laughs> this is a bad analogy, and you wrote, David was here. Okay? You're claiming that place. You're saying, this is... This land is my land. It's a claim on the land. And so wherever Abraham goes, he's going to set up these little altars where he's saying, this belongs to me. This is my place. Okay? Now, it's not out in the open. He's not conducting a big military conquest like Joshua will. But he, this is, he's laying the foundation. He's pouring the basement that later is going to be built upon. And so let's, let's look at some passages that talk about altars and the significance of an altar. Uh, first of all, even before we look at Bible passages, what's the point of an altar? Okay, it goes up a little bit from the ground. And what do you do on an altar? You sacrifice things with you got to have fire, right? If you're going to have a sacrifice, you got to have fire. You burn it up. Why do you burn it up? Why can't you just say, all right, um, I want to give an offering to God. Here's some grain. I'm just going to put it on this rock and leave it here. Why do you need fire? Why does it have to go up? You're on the right track. This is good. We're thinking this is good for us to kind of train our brains to think along with the Bible. Why does it have to go up? Because God is up. That's the conception, right? God is above us. And so if something's going to go to him, somehow it's got to go, it's got to go up. Think of Jesus ascending into heaven, okay? Now, it's also true, right, that no matter how high up you go, no matter how much Elon Musk goes further and further, higher and higher, he's never going to get to heaven, right? You can't get there from here except through Jesus. Um, so it's not, it's not that we're saying at 25,000 feet elevation, all of a sudden you'll be in heaven. 
right? But conceptually, this is the way God created the world. This is the way he teaches us to think of him as he is above us, okay? So somehow I have to get my offering to go up. Why else is fire good for this? Fire can purify things, right? What happens uh, with smoke? Yeah, smoke. Think of the smoke. It's disappearing, right? You watch it go up, it keeps going, and then you can't see it anymore. And eventually, if you leave it on the fire long enough, the whole thing disappears. So the whole thing is transformed into smoke, and the smoke is, goes up into heaven. It goes to where the spirits are. Yes? Is there a part there as well? That's a good point, right? When you burn it on the fire, when you give something to God, you can't be an Indian giver. I know that's politically incorrect to say, but you know what I mean, right? If you give something in fire, you can't say, oh, can I have that back, right? Because it's gone. That's, is that your point, right? Yeah, we can't, our offerings to God are permanently his. They belong to him. Yeah, I think that's part of it. What's that? Yes, the Bible says that God likes the smell. Now, the Bible is full of these, we call these anthropomorphisms. Say that ten times fast, right? An anthropomorphism, where we attribute something to God, something that we experience to him. So, God is spirit, right? God the Father does not have a nose. So how can he smell things? Well, he says that he does. So we're just going to stick to that. Again, it's, it's the conception. God is teaching us how he thinks, and he wants us to think of him this way. So even though we aren't saying, yeah, God has a nose up in the sky, and, you know, if you burn something that smells really good, you can kind of, you know, you can trick him into being nice to you. You know, it's like, um, you know, the husband puts on his cologne, hoping that, you know, his wife will forget about the fact that he didn't buy flowers and he didn't make dinner reservations, but he smells really good, right? Does that work, ladies? It's been a long time since I tried cologne. Um, high school, that was the big thing. Do they still wear cologne in high school, Hayes? Yeah, do you? Don't answer that, okay, yeah. Let your, your natural pheromones will, yeah, that's what works. Um, I'm in a weird place today, but... Um, <laughs> What was I saying? Yes, God smells these things. That's good. That's good. Um, now, there's also another reason for the fire. Go back, go in your Bibles to Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, expelled from Eden, we get this little note in Genesis 3, verse 24. That's important for the way the Bible is thinking, the way that God wants us to think. Genesis 3.24. Okay. Here's what it says. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim. That's plural. Multiple cherubs. Cherub is singular. Cherubim is plural. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So how, it, how would you get back into Eden? What would you have to go through? Fire. You'd have to pass through the guardians, the cherub guardians. And in the tabernacle, the, um, the architecture of the tabernacle and the temple had these cherubim all over the place. They were woven into the tapestries, 
right? We think of the, um, the command, thou shalt not make any graven image. Well, there were lots of images in the tabernacle, but they were given by God. In any case, there were these cherubim. So this is not just Abraham thinking, oh, you know what? I need this to disappear up into heaven. Oh, that's what I should use, fire, right? It's, it's actually thinking with the Bible, okay? So for something to go to God, it has to go through the fire, okay? So altars are places of fire. They're places of sacrifice. Now, we haven't mentioned an important thing here, which is why would you give an offering in the first place? Why would you sacrifice to God? Okay, but why offer a sacrifice? He tells us to, yes, but strangely, he didn't tell Abraham to, right? There's no command until Moses. There's no regulation of how the offerings are to take place. And when you get to Moses, there's lots of commands, aren't there? Anybody ever read Leviticus? That's usually, you know, every, every New Year, you say, I'm going to read through the Bible. Genesis, no problem. Exodus, pretty good. There's a lot of stuff about a tent that gets a little repetitive. And then Leviticus, you're like, oh my gosh, all this, all this ritual, I can't handle it. Um, but there are lots of commands about offerings in Leviticus, but there's nothing prior to that. So there's no command to do it. So why would Abraham do it? Why would Noah offer sacrifices? Why did Cain and Abel, they're the first sacrificers, why did they bring an offering? This impress God? Maybe that's, you're getting closer. This business of we are beholden to him, we owe him, that's true. Thanksgiving is part of an offering, sure. Um, but I, let's go along the lines of owing something, right? Everything is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, says the psalm, right? And um, man knows after the fall that it's not just we need to thank God, but the relationship has been ruptured. There's been a rupture in the bond between God and man. And what was the punishment that God said to Adam and Eve? If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... Dying, you will surely die. Those repetitions, that's how the Hebrews say things like emphatically. The holy of holies. St. Paul is the Hebrew of Hebrews, right? That's in Hebrew, you don't say most. You just repeat yourself, and that makes the point, right? So dying, you will die means you're definitely going to die, okay? So something has to die. For man to be brought back to God, there a death is required. That's what's owed. Okay? Now, if I kill myself in the fire, that's it, right? But if there's a substitute, if there's something that goes in my place, this is how you, you can think about the sacrifices, something goes in my place, it ascends up to God, and like Marvin said, God says, this is pleasing in my nose, then, okay, fellowship has been restored, the bond is restored, and so that, I think that's part of the sacrifice here, too. Now, let's look in, this comes later than uh, Abraham's sacrifice, but let's look at some of the other biblical symbolism of uh, an altar. Go to Exodus 22. I'm sorry, Exodus 20.
Um, you can see on the, on the screen behind me, this is, where is this? can never remember where. It's in Egypt, right? These are the temples of Giza, okay? So um, it's not just the Hebrews, it's not just the Jews who think of altars as going up to God. This is kind of all over the place. I, I think I've mentioned in here before the Aztecs and the Mayans. Has anybody ever been to the ruins down in Mexico? Yeah, they build structures just like this. And at the top, there's always an altar. And at the top of these little man-made mountains, you make your altar, and there the Aztecs and the Mayans sacrifice humans, right? No, they, they rip their hearts out. Yeah, even worse. Than put, I don't know. Is it worse to push someone off a cliff? We can debate that another time. What's the worst way to die? Um, but human sacrifice is practiced kind of far and wide. But here's what, here's what God says about an altar. This is right after the giving of the Ten Commandments, before the tabernacle has been established. So here's the first commanded altar. The Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourself that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of hewn stones. For if you build your tool on it, you profane it. For if you wield your tool on it, excuse me, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Okay? So what are the materials that can be used for an altar here? Stone that hasn't been, you know, chipped away. You can't carve it up. It's got to be a, a virgin stone or dirt, earth and stone, okay? Earth and stone are the sanctioned materials here. Now, later, God is going to say, cover it in bronze, use wood. Um, you can, when God says you can use bronze or you can use other materials, that's permission, right? You can use other materials. But the original is earth and stone, and what do we associate earth and stone with? Mountains, right? If you, if you build up a little mound of earth, what have you made for yourself? A little baby mountain. It's a jumbo, yeah, a baby mountain is, like, is an oxymoron, jumbo shrimp. Um, you build up a little mountain for yourself. Now, why should an altar be a mountain? What are the other Bible stories that have to do with mountains that we think of? Yes, okay. Abraham's going to offer his son Isaac at the top of a mountain. What else? Who did? God appeared to the people. He gave them the law from the top of a mountain. Moses went up into the cloud. Yeah, Mount Sinai. Yeah, the mountain, you're, you're right. All of these stories, when you link them together, what you see, the repetition, a lot of different things happen at mountains, but the commonality is that's where God meets with man. And again, this goes back to what we said before about the smoke going up. Where is God? He's up above me. So if I'm going to meet him, where do I have to go? Up, 
onto a mountain. Go to, um, I'm going to show you something here that I, had, I didn't realize this until probably a year ago. Do you know the first mountain in the Bible is in Eden? Go to Genesis 2. Eden is at the top of a mountain. We don't usually think of it that way, do we? It's the garden of pleasures. It should be in a valley. But it's on a mountain. I'll show you why I, I think it's on a mountain. Look at Genesis 2, verse 10. Okay, we're going to see, we're going to test you to see if you can put together, because it doesn't say it was on top of a mountain. The Bible teaches things explicitly. You shall not murder, right? Explicit command. And the Bible also teaches implicitly. You have to think along with it. There are implications, okay? So here's what it says in Genesis 2, verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows out of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, why does that, do those verses show us that the Garden of Eden is on top of a mountain? That's right. Very, give this man a cookie, right? Um, the river, water, unless you're in Michigan and you go to the mystery spot where water flows uphill because they pump it up the hill, um, but, and they sell tickets so you can come and see this wonder, water going uphill. Um, water always flows downhill. So if these rivers go out and water the whole earth, then they have to start above the whole earth. Okay, so the Garden of Eden is a mountain garden, right? It's up top, it's up high. And this, this, again, you start to see the Bible, things click into place sometimes, and it's really nice when they click into place. So if man is going to go back to God, he's got to go up the mountain, he's got to go through the fire, well, that's what an altar does. Every altar is like this little um, transportation back to Eden. It's a portal to Eden. Okay? Let's look at another spot, Exodus 24, 4 to 5. We've got um, altars as mountains. Why did, I, why did we do this one? Ah, yes. Exodus 24, 4 to 5. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Why would you throw the blood? So you get the, you get the picture here? You kill the animal. You save the blood in a basin. In the tabernacle, they had all these. Um, if you were an acolyte in the tabernacle, you were probably dealing with blood. Levites and priests, they're always dealing with blood. So you catch all the blood. You take that from the animal. You put the animal on the fire. turns into smoke. 
and you take the blood and you throw it against the altar. Why do you throw the blood against the altar? We've already mentioned it. Dying you shall surely die, right? Through death. Through death we come back to God. Okay? And that's through the whole Old Testament. The blood has to go, the blood has to be separated from the animal and has to go against the altar. So the blood covers the mountain and prepares the way for the animal to go back to God. And in a sense, you're riding. Every time those sacrifices go up, you're going with them. Okay? Now, here you notice Moses has 12 pillars. Why 12 pillars? On the altar corresponds to the tribes so not only is the altar a symbol of the mountain of God but the altar is also here associated with the people of God okay so the mountain and the people the altar serves as a picture of God's people all right let's look at the next one Isaiah 2 now go to Ezekiel we'll skip the Isaiah one go to Ezekiel Ezekiel 43, this is a vision, kind of like John's revelation. Ezekiel is the, um, is the model that the book of Revelation in a lot of ways picks up on. Um, Ezekiel 43 is going to describe for us a vision of an altar that has never existed, at least not in these exact dimensions. Who wants to read the, give, give me a chance to drink my coffee here. Who will read this for us? Go ahead, Gavin, 13 to 17. These are the measurements of the altar by cubits. Its base shall be one cubit high and one cubit broad, with, with a ram of, of, of one span around its edge. And this shall be the height of the altar from the base on the ground to the lower, lower ledge, two cubits, with a breadth of one cubit, and from the smaller ledge to the larger ledge, Okay, so if you have trouble picturing that, here is a, um, this altar, here's a view from the top, this one over here, the altar of sacrifice. This is the altar uh, for the tabernacle, this is the altar for the temple, this is the altar Ezekiel sees. So it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, all right? And it kind of looks like a, like a cake, right? Or like, a, it's like a stairway up. Okay, um, there's these little ledges going up. And what do you notice about the dimensions here? What's that? It's very large. Yep, it would be um, a cubit is one and a half feet. So if you can multiply, if you can do some quick math, you guys are homeschooled, so you can do it. You're not, so you can't. Um, but multiply that times one and a half, and you get the, the total dimensions. What else do you notice about the dimensions? It's square. It's perfectly square. Now, have you ever, if, if an altar is supposed to be a mountain, has, um, Cal, you just came from Colorado, are the mountains ever perfectly square? Per, you know, in the pictures, the way you draw them, you just draw triangles, right? 
That's not the way mountains work in the world. So these mountains are perfect mountains. These altars are perfect. They are impo- the order is imposed. They are the ideal. They are perfectly measured. Right? And if the altar represents the people, the people are supposed to be perfectly square too. Right? Um, what does it mean to be perfectly square? <laughs> doesn't mean you're a loser. Right? What does it mean to be perfectly square as a Christian? We're not trying to become spheres. We're not platonic. You know, yeah, that's right. You are, you are righteous. You conform to the law. You are perfectly measured out. Right? Um, God, this is what the Holy Spirit is working in you. He is making you perfectly square. In heaven, you will be seven cubits wide by seven cubits high by seven cubits deep, by seven cubits broad. In, in all dimensions, you will be properly proportioned, okay? Perfectly proportioned. So the altars of Israel are, um, all of these symbols kind of gel together in the altar. And we're just trying to kind of spit these things out. The other thing that you might have noticed here is these reference to what the Bible calls horns. Did everybody hear that? The altars always have horns on them, okay? So here's the horns in the tabernacle altar. Here's the horns in the temple altar. Here's Ezekiel's horns. Why should the, why should the altar have horns? What kinds of things have horns in the world? Bulls have horns and bulls get offered on there. Goats have horns. Rams have horns. Sheep have horns. But there's other things that get offered on these altars that don't have horns, okay? What else has horns? We've already talked about it. These are like, anybody know? They blow horns. Yeah, that's right. They blow horns and knock down the walls of Jericho. A horn can be an instrument. Think of mountains. What would a horn correspond to on a mountain? The peak. Yep. So the altar has peaks. Again, this just reinforces that the altar is the mountain. Okay? All, of this, all of this symbolic stuff is conveying to the Israelites, conveying to us that the altar is the place where man is brought back to God. Right? We're getting back to Eden. And the point is not to just be in the physical location of Eden, but why was Eden so special? because that's where God was, right? Um, why do we want to go to heaven? It's not because the lemonade tastes so good there. It's not because the golf courses are perfectly manicured there. You've got to get that out of your mind. Heaven is, not, um, heaven is not a golf course, okay? It's better. Heaven is great because Jesus is there. And the altar here, the, the mountain is so good, Eden is so good, because that's where God was. So to be back with God is the whole point. Sorry to disappoint those of you who want to golf in heaven. Um, maybe you can, you can design a great golf course in heaven, and you can take me on it. You can say, I, sh- I told you, Pastor. I knew we'd play golf in heaven. Okay. Um, one more passage here. Uh, go, to, go to Daniel chapter 2. Because this business of, a, um, of an altar, a mountain becomes a symbol for Christ and the church, right? Which, which 
if we had enough time, we could have gotten here, even without this book of Daniel. If the altar is the mountain of God, and the altar represents the people of God, it has those 12 pillars, well, eventually, Jesus is going to be the one who brings us back to God, so he's got to be mountain-like in some way, right? And we, as the people of God in the New Testament, we've got to be some kind of a mountain too, right? So if you look at Daniel 2, you'll see this kind of spelled out for us. Daniel 2, 34 to 35. This is part of a man named Nebuchadnezzar's dream. What do we know about Nebuchadnezzar? What was he? What kind of a man was he? He was haughty. Yeah, good word, Sam. He was haughty. What else was he? What was his role? What was his position? Yeah, right. Make a big statue, right? But he was an emperor, okay? He was the emperor of the Babylonian Empire. And he has this dream about how great his empire is, right? The The head of gold, the, I forget the body parts, the shoulders of silver, you got a golden head, then a silver, maybe upper body, bronze belly, and then iron and clay legs. These are the empires, Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks and the Romans. Okay? And that's what inspires him, like Jacob said, to build a golden tower. Oh, I'm the golden head. Sweet. Let's make a golden tower. What he forgets is this part of the, of the dream. So Daniel is telling him what he saw. Verse 34, as you looked, Nebuchadnezzar, a stone was cut out by no human hand. What does that remind you of with what we heard from uh, Moses, with Moses? You can make an altar out of stone, but what kind of stone does it have to be? A stone that's never been touched by any human hand, okay? So as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. What's the only other kind of hand that could do it? God, yeah, God. Maybe he used an angel, but it's a divine hand. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces. All these empires came crumbling down and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became... A great mountain, a great altar, and filled the whole earth. Who's this prophecy talking about? Jesus. And Jesus doesn't like being alone. So who else is it about? The church. When we think of Christ, right, first and foremost, think of Jesus alone. Jesus alone. Christ alone. But then remember, always, Jesus doesn't want to be alone. It's not good for the man to be alone. What does he need? He needs Eve. He needs his helper. Yeah, man, they got good words over here, right? Haughty and helper. This is good. Um, So he needs his wife. And so when the Bible is prophesying about Christ, first and foremost, we apply it to Jesus. And then we see something about the church here, too. So Jesus is the great mountain, and so are you. The church is this mountain that fills the whole earth, right? You're supposed to be a little altar. You're a piece of the altar, Now, if we look at the construction of the altar, just look at this one. Here's the tabernacle altar. And I don't think this is quite right. 
whoever the artist is here didn't consult with me, or I would have, I would have corrected the artist. This little grating, do you see the grating in here? This should be lower down. So the, the altar is kind of hollow. And the reason that I make a big point about that is because it's not, they don't just put the sacrifice on top of the altar. The sacrifice goes down into the altar. Okay? Where is the fire? Down inside here, right? So this looks, <laughs> this looks like the, the lattice work that you can you know, buy and put underneath your deck. How many, do any of you have that lattice work? Jerry helped me when I bought my house. We had this patio, kind of a second-story patio, and the, the gaps in the posts, remember this, Jerry, were perfectly wide enough for all of my kids to squeeze right through and fall to their death. So, so we went out to the store and we bought these, these lattice work um, and put it up there so now the kids just bang their head. Sam still does that, bangs his head against it. Okay, um, but the priests could remove this, right? And every morning, one of the priestly jobs was to tend the fire. Okay, so just like in the olden days, your oldest son has to make sure that the fire stays burning. The priest's job was to keep the fire going. So in the morning, you pull off the ashes, you put on new wood. In the evening, you pile it all up so that it burns through the night. Okay, so you take care of the fire down beneath here. And then you put the animals on top of this grating. And the animals get burned up and consumed and go up. Now, all of this comes later. Okay? All of this comes later. But just like Abraham is the shadow conquest of the land, Abraham is also providing for us a shadow of worship, a picture of worship. Okay, so when we think of Abraham building his altars at, what were the places again? Shechem and Bethel. What he's doing is he's establishing these places, these mountains, these little mountains, where God and man are going to be restored to each other. They're going to be brought back, right? Now, we can anticipate something really good here that Gavin already mentioned. Where does this, um, what is implicit here, come out explicitly in the life of Abraham. So where, what is this, the primary story of sacrifice in the life of Abraham? His son, okay? And this is, you know, why didn't the Bible spell out in vivid detail? Now, Abraham built the altar. It was exactly four cubits wide by four cubits long. And, you know, he built it just this way. The reason that the details are not given is so that we don't obsess over those details and instead look to the story, the sacrificial story that has all the details. So when we get there, you have to remember everything I said this morning. <laughs> all of this stuff is the background, right? This is, again, the foundation. Through the altar, through the sacrifice, on the mountain of the Lord, God and man are restored. There's no mention here of what is actually offered, is there? doesn't say he offered 25 boat, uh, goats and 12 bulls and 3 pigeons. It says nothing about that. Okay? The only thing that we're ever told that Abraham offered, I believe, I could be wrong about this, but I think, the only thing he ever actually offers is his son, who then gets provided for a substitute um, with the ram. All right? So see how these things are starting to build up? 
right? Already in these stories, these things are building up. Now, let's talk about deception. Go, to, go back to Genesis 12. Unless anybody want to talk more, I'd, I'd be happy to talk more about altars. Any questions about altars? Maybe we should just do this. Our altar is very different looking than this altar, isn't it? Yes. Is that okay? Why, why don't we construct our altars like this anymore? Because we don't, well, we do sacrifice, don't we? We offer the real sacrifice. See, this is, we've got to get this um, more firmly down in our minds. We offer the real sacrifices, right? We offer the real deal. They were only just, they wanted to be like you, right? They wish that they could offer the kind of sacrifices you offer, okay? The sacrifices that we offer are superior to the blood. Now, they're not bloody, and when we think of sacrifice, we oh, blood. And if you're like me, it's at least a little bit exciting. You know, it'd be kind of cool to at least see the tabernacle in action. Some of you might be grossed out by it. Um, all of us might eventually get sick of it. But it's kind of, it would be kind of cool, don't you think? To see how they did it all and, you know, see all that blood getting, <laughs> Wanda's like, Pastor, come on, no, right? Um, but it would be, it would at least bring these stories to life a little. It would make it vivid for you, okay? But what you offer is superior to what they offer. Now, we don't burn things up on the altar anymore, so we don't need a hollowed-out altar. We don't need um, the acolytes to f- get the fire underneath the altar. We don't need authorized priests to drop in certain things there. What do you offer to God? The sacrifices of God are, the Psalms say, praise, praise Praise the Lord in his sanctuary, praise him all ye hosts. The sacrifices of the lips, right, that's the way the book of Hebrews talks about it. Your words, your song of praise is a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord, right? It's better than all the fatty portions of the bulls being burnt up. As much as that smoke that they sent up in Israel, as much as that smelled good, the Kleins know about the goodness of sweet-smelling smoke, right? As much as that smells good, the praises of God's people smell even better, okay? So your praises are part of the sacrifice. What else do you offer? Sacrifices of God are, Psalm 51, a broken spirit. You are the sacrifice, right? You are the altar and you are the sacrifice. You sacrifice yourself to God. And this is what repentance is all about. You lay yourself down on the altar and you go up in the smoke of the spirit and God receives you, right? Have you ever thought of yourself as a sacrifice? That's what you're supposed to be. You don't just drop the money in the plate and say, okay, I fulfilled my obligation. I paid my dues. We don't pay dues in the church. We pay pledges, a token, right? When I put the money in the plate, it's like I'm putting myself in the plate. What does Jesus say about your money? Where your treasure is, there your heart is. So when you drop, this is why it's good to always put something physical, even if you give electronically, it's good to still put something in the plate because it reminds me I'm going up. I'm part of what's offered. I give myself to God. Okay, so we've got our whole life and certainly the sacrifice of our lips. We could spend more time on that. Yes, sir. Um, when, at what point was, or was uh, the uh, 
when God said, make it exactly these dimensions. Okay. Yeah. When, if God says, um, now, I told you before, never cut the stone, but then if he says, now, I want you to cut it now, then you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. But, I, but even that, I don't know, I'd have to look in, I don't know that this altar had any stones on it. It, it probably, I mean, it does here, and these were probably cut, but I, I, now that you ask it, I don't know if they ever cut the stones. Yeah, it's very nicely cut. It's perfectly square. Yeah, it's very nicely cut. Um, the other thing, we don't need fire anymore because we have something even better than fire. What do we have? We've got wine, which is like liquid fire. That's why I know you don't believe me, but that wine should have a higher alcohol content. We tried that for a while, and people would come up to communion, and they'd go back like this. Oh. Oh, it was port. It was 18% alcohol. It was good, and it burned, and that's, suppo- that's what wine is supposed to do. But I couldn't take people coming up to communion and oh, going, home, going back like that, so we dropped it down to, I think it's, what is that stuff now? Who's on the altar guild? 12%, 11%? It's not nearly as fiery. Okay, so we've got the wine that's like fire, but something even better than wine the Holy Ghost. That's right. Think of Pentecost. Those apostles are like altars. The Holy Spirit burns on them, and the spirit of fire uh, fills the heart of every Christian. So you are uh, turned into this sacrifice because the spirit burns you up, okay? And your whole life, he's turning you into smoke. Eventually, your whole life is going to be consumed, and you'll become completely smoky, and you'll disappear, and we won't see you anymore. Uh, until you're raised, right? But you got to turn into smoke first. Okay, enough on that. Let's talk about deception. Go to Genesis 12. We can at least get the story started. Genesis 12, and Abram and his wife, Sarai. I'll read it for us. Verse 10. There was a famine in the land, as often happened. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Let me pull up my map here. Okay, so you got to go down to Egypt, because Egypt has rivers. Um, When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say, you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and all his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife, take her and go. 
And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning, concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Okay, let's get the historical details first, and then we can talk about um, the lying, the deceiving here. Okay, um, you get the picture. What does this story sound a lot like? I feel like I've heard this story before. These Hebrews go down into Egypt. They get a lot of things. There's plagues in Egypt. They come out. Have you ever heard this story before? Yeah. Where have we heard it before? It's the Exodus, right? Remember, Abraham is a shadow of everything that's going to come. Okay? So it's a little Exodus, but there's some, some twists here. All right? In the big Exodus, it's easy to see the oppression of Pharaoh. What did Pharaoh do that was oppressive, tyrannical to the people of Israel? He made them slaves, right? And not just any old slaves. He wasn't a nice master. He said, you got to make straw and you got to make it without mud, right? If you've ever seen the, um, the Charlton Heston movie, doesn't it, doesn't it show this? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it does. It's been a long time since I've watched that. But you can see the oppression of Pharaoh. And not only did he make them slaves, what else did he do to them? He's killing not just their firstborn, that'd be bad enough. All the Hebrew boys, right? There's too many of them. There's going to be an uprising. This is what masters always fear. And so what's the solution? If there's too many of them, kill all the boys. And what was the policy of Pharaoh? How do you kill the boys? Throw them in the river, right? Throw them in the Nile River. And, you know, you just got to wonder, why was the first plague, 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 plague? What's the problem? Why was the first plague that the Nile River turned to blood? Well, maybe because you threw a bunch of babies in there, right? God turned, I don't know. In any case... That was the first plague. So we don't have all of that here with Pharaoh. But what do you have with Pharaoh? What's he trying to do? What does Pharaoh want that Abram has? He wants this beautiful woman because the woman is the means by which Pharaoh can multiply his offspring, right? So Pharaoh wants babies. Pharaoh wants sons because sons mean... A future. Sons have to do with the future. The house of Pharaoh is going to grow. Now, Abram knows something about the Egyptians, and it's interesting to uh, read commentaries, especially old commentaries. I was reading, we got um, all of Luther's works in there, so you can read what Luther said about um, everything. And um, he talks about this, and he says, he brought up something that I never would have thought of. He said, is it wrong... Of, of This is very modern of Luther, actually. Was it wrong of Abram to, um, to be prejudiced against the Egyptians? Because <laughs> look what he does. He goes down there and he says, now look, I've never been to Egypt before, but they're going to try to steal my wife. Well, that's prejudice, isn't it? And Luther has like five pages about how <laughs> he, he ends up saying, you know, this wasn't wrong of of uh, Abram to do, but I thought I was reading something that was written in 2023 when I, when I opened that up. Um, but it, no, that was 500 years ago. So Pharaoh, or Abram knows there's a reputation of Pharaoh down in Egypt, and the reputation is 
he wants all the women for himself. What do we call that when the leader collects all the women? It's a harem. Yep. And this is not unique just to Pharaoh. You've got to think about the times. It sounds ridiculous to us, you know, that the king of a, of a whole country would just say, I, all the women belong to me. But it was somewhat common. Okay, so common policy. Abram knows about it, and he says, now, don't tell him you're my wife or he's going to kill me. Tell him instead you're my sister. Okay. Now, some people see, read that and say, this is a sign that Abram's faith was weak or that he sinned here. Why would somebody say that? What has God told Abram so far? We only have one message from God to Abram. Back in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. I will make you a great nation, yeah? And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So again, sometimes the Bible is explicit. Sometimes it's implicit. There's an implicit promise here that Abram's going to have children. He's going to have sons. I will make you a great nation. You've got to have sons to, have, to become a great nation. So some people read Genesis 12 here and say, look, Abram had to learn here that God would protect him. Abram had to learn that he didn't need to lie. He didn't need to trick anyone, that God would um, you know, curse those who dishonor him. But here's the reason why I don't go with that. Notice who gets in trouble for all of this. Does God appear to Abram and say, hey, Abram, don't be so thick-headed. Don't be so weak of faith. Don't you remember? I told you. Those who curse you, I will curse. What is God, who does God punish? Pharaoh. Pharaoh's the one who's doing what shouldn't be done. Abram benefits from all of this, right? He benefits from all of it. So somehow what he's doing here is not only not bad, but it's, in some way, it's positive. And for that, you have to come back next week because <laughs> it's 1030. And so we got to stop here. But we'll talk about what is the, why is being Sarah's brother, and we'll think of other Bible stories where we see this, the brother of the woman is the protector of the woman. We'll see another, um, there's a, a helpful story there um, that shows Abram is not just saying, hey, sister, you got to protect me now. But he's actually going to protect her through what he's doing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through your son, Jesus Christ, you have prepared the way back, um, not only to the blessings of Eden, but you have prepared a way um, for blessings that are even greater than those you gave to Adam and Eve in Eden. Eden, we thank you for the forgiveness of our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ, for the gift of the Holy Spirit, um, who makes us now acceptable and pleasing sacrifices in your sight. Please bless us now as we go into your house to worship or as we return to our homes for a life of praise and service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yes, sir.